from the rise of social media to automation to AI, the elites are using it all to concentrate power at the top. The Monica Perez Show starts now. This is Monica Perez waking Atlanta up to the true threats to our liberty every Saturday from 3 to 6 right here on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. And that is exactly what I am always trying to do, always taking the news of the week, sometimes going a little bit deeper. My trusty sidekick, Binkley, here always takes us a deeper dive um, at the risk of mixing metaphors deep down the rabbit hole. Uh, And today is no exception. Binkley found some great stuff from the, there was a Chatham House panel called Direct Democracy Participation Without Populism. So I like to even think about that a little bit. Direct Democracy Participation Without Populism, where they talk about this is the elite of the elite. We've got billionaires and uh, controllers everywhere. They tell us what they tell each other what the plan is and why and how to get people on board as if nobody's listening because in fact nobody is really listening except Binkley and now all of us thank you uh and they because we trust so much that that 24/7 news cycle is going to keep us informed of all this stuff it absolutely doesn't it's there to keep us informed only of what will support the ideas that that support the policies that benefit these people at the top, regardless of party. And one, and the method, this method, it's it's actually called stovepiping. And John Bolton was talked about uh, stovepiping is like the original stovepiper because he only told George Bush what George Bush uh, could use to make a decision to invade Iraq. I think was the example. And so anything that contradicted arguments for was filtered out at the data stage. So you weren't having a debate. You were having filtered data that uh, was then used for the decision-making process. And the first person to do that or to be uh, that attributed to was Colonel House in the Woodrow Wilson administration. And that was like the CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations, was first kind of born out of World War I. So around that time, Colonel House was part of that. And this Chatham House, where this panel discussion comes from, as well as the uh, Council of Foreign Relations, which is his sister, its sister, they employed that from the very beginning. They did it. FDR was a great, great example because he was immobile because of his paralysis. He actually physically could not have contact with a lot of the people and opportunities that would have maybe informed him a little bit better. So he was a great person to be, to stovepipe information to. But what these people in this direct democracy, participation without populism, they are talking about stovepiping. And one of the billionaire backers of this initiative, the initiative is being laid out by a guy named Nathan Gardels. He's a senior advisor to the Berggruen Institute. And, uh, and he, the Bergeron Institute is this billionaire guy who is a CFR guy. He is a Brookings guy. He's a World Economic Forum guy. And he, he says, uh, 
that we need we need social media we need people to be uh engaged i'm not sure he even uses the the word informed he says that uh their voices need to be heard that's different from them being informed again he says they need filters and their and the and his mouthpiece nathan gardell's is out there kind of talking about a new democracy so we're going to get into some of that guy's clips and one of the one of the things I, I find interesting is that there's been the technology has been subsidized and fostered at the highest levels to give us social media, to give us uh, robotics, AI, automation, even not just like direct research by the government. They they'll hold like contests to get people to up the the to accelerate the development of tech. They'll do it in a way that pure capitalism would never allow for because investments in capital and tech and revolutionary technologies isn't made when labor can take care of it pretty easily. They uh, fund research at institution, uh, at universities. Universities fund it themselves. Corporations fund it within the university system or benefit from it. There's, uh, there are just even just uh, the way the tax system works, it fosters this stuff. And they bring it to us uh, at a speed and a level that we would never have it on our own. And then they use it as a reason that they are going to take away our ability to, to govern ourselves, as well as our uh, ability to to make decisions to access our own resources to get paid they want to to uh use us being automated out of jobs as an example as a as an excuse for them to collect all the money at the top and then redistribute it it's pretty amazing what this guy's up to uh binkley i thank you for these great uh clips and the great insights and everything are you uh so th this thing was like really comprehensive, right? There was a lot to it. We're never getting to this right, all of it now. It, it felt like it was 90 hours long. <laughs> was, so was it tedious? Because I think the clips are fascinating, the clips that you sent me. It's interesting enough to get me hooked. Some of the people talk really slow. I, I need like a quadruple speed. So you curated it for me. I appreciate that. And I, in turn, am curating it for the listener so we're really only getting to the absolute cream of the crop here, but it will never get to all the cream of the crop. So I want people to be able to uh, go to thepropreport.com, which is where we do our podcast, The Propaganda Report. We'll put this show up. We'll put uh, our podcast up that is going to go a little deeper into all of this. Uh, so, so Binkley, um, I want to... I want to, I think it's clip number 17 that addresses this idea of automating us out of jobs and then yeah. paying us. Let's hear it. Let's hear clip 17. Uh, Predistribution, second point. Uh, the innovations of digital capitalism are steadily disruptive and increasingly divorcing employment and income from productivity growth and wealth creation. A social contract that responds to this dynamic should protect workers instead of jobs as they constantly churn through innovation and foster an ownership share by all in the wealth generated by the robots that are displacing gainful employment. The aim is to enhance the 
uh, skills and assets that are less well off in the first place, pre-distribution, instead of only distributing wealth of others after the fact. We call this universal basic capital. The idea is not just to break up concentration at the top, but to build wealth from the bottom. The simple message is, uh, uh, if you want to fight inequality in the digital age, the best way to do it is to spread the equity around. That just sounds like pure communism to me. We all own the robots' profits. I mean, and and this idea of equality, it begins to be ridiculous. Like, what, what do they mean? We don't actually, like, when you talk about this society, so it's all automated. And he says, protect the workers, not the jobs. It's like, well, there are no, wor- the workers are robots. Yeah, <laughs> so I know. There are no yeah. jobs. So... <laughs> So there, so it's very quickly that you're like, okay, there's 7 billion people on Earth. The elite, I mean, you don't have to clump them all together, but you could. They almost universally agree that the population of the Earth is like at the minimum two or three times larger than it, quote, should be. So what, what you're, why they're even going to keep you around once they have used us to pay the taxes to foster the technology that they are then going to get control of all of the production of and trickle it down to us as we stand with our hands out begging. I, that is just not, I'm not empowered by that vision. And, it, and the liberty, the equality thing, when, when you talk about this, like we want equality, yeah, you would sure as shooting have equality if everybody got if 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 the government collected all of the production from everybody and handed it out in the same amount. But but the measure of equality isn't that. What you want is equal protection under the law, equal opportunity, and you want to be able to make your own choices so that you're not subject to okay i just want x amount of dollars and i have to figure other some people like to work like crazy and produce a lot for society for the world and then get a big paycheck and spend it on yachts or whatever and some people want to have a lot more leisure and maybe their bank accounts aren't equal but their utility might be the the person who opts for leisure over wealth status and image is probably the the greater of those of those you know, maybe are better off than those. So I feel like this is a trap. And I think it goes to, all. you know, I think this is where they talk about socialism versus capitalism. That is such an outdated argument that our politicians are putting us through. This is the real communism. It's not digital capitalism. It's digital communism. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, is that the, th- what was your overarching kind of like impression of this guy as you listened to so much of what he had to say? Well, my jaw was dropped <laughs> most of the time, and I'd never even really thought about a robot picking up a paycheck and then giving it back to us. It's just a, it, it, it's kind of mind-boggling hearing these guys already planning for robots to be running society and how we're going to survive since we can't do anything after that. Well, you had turned me on to another little... Uh, episode of of one of these think tank things about emerging tech and defense and it made me think that we are truly uh talking about the rise of the machines but we're gonna we're gonna have to take a break and then after the break i want to continue with what the the, these guys are saying 
he talks about he, he changes the so we are hearing the theme of universal basic income. He's taught he changed the name in that clip that we just heard to universal basic capital to yeah. make it sound less communist or offensive or whatever. But the fact is that a lot of these guys are all on the same page. They're looking to give us the same deliver us the same thing. They're using these technologies as an example of why we can no longer govern ourselves. And then that's the punchline here is that they want to reformulate our entire democracy. So we're going to keep peeling this onion after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Evil does seek to maintain power by suppressing the truth. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. Binkley, you've been turning us on to this uh, this Chatham House panel where they said because robots are taking our jobs, they have to collect all the money and distribute it all down to us. And we're uh, because social media has made us so stupid, we can't even have democracy anymore. I'm basically putting it all into a nutshell but every clip that unfolds it's like they gave us something they forced stuff upon us they subsidized it and they're using it as an excuse to take away all of our liberty and all of our uh, ability to have a say in how we are governed anyway so i just love your clips i want to uh play as many as we can do you clip 21 who is that speaking that's nathan Okay, uh, so Gardell's. Nathan is the guy who's writing the book, who's the puppet of, or the whatever, mouthpiece of Nicholas Bergwin, a billionaire, CFR guy, Brookings guy, World Economic Forum guy. Lynn Rothschild had a piece of this earlier. Uh, let's let's um, just hear what all those people have in store for us by playing clip 21. We're all about deliberation. We need institutions so that you just can't say, we don't like same-sex marriage. And that's the end of it. Because in California, if you gather 500,000 signatures and say, we don't like same-sex marriage, it goes to the ballot and the public votes on it, and it becomes um, uh, the law unless the courts challenge it. So to get back to your first point, so the, the, what's the crisis of democracy, this, the same question was asked the other day in an interview with The Economist. They said, what's the problem? What, what crisis of democracy? You're just liberal cosmopolitans who don't like the, you know, the way, the people, yeah. the way you people are voting. I said, no, it's not an issue of elections. You know, like I said, Macron goes this way, Le Pen goes that way. It's an issue of the institutions, of impartial institution practices outside the ballot box that make democracy work and allow a governing consensus to happen in diverse societies. I missed the first time I listened to that. Lynn Rothschild owns The Economist, I think. So him being interviewed by them is kind of a little bit of a setup. But this idea of having to control direct democracy, it's actually going to be easier for them to, con to control it. The way I think of it is like when we switched from pensions, the policies changed to make pensions difficult to manage, to institute, and we went to 401ks. That makes us individually a little easier to manipulate. I want to carry on with that theme of how they're they're going to be very manipulative in this direct democracy. After the break, this is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. No, never give up, never surrender. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. I am waking Atlanta up to the true threats to our liberty. Every Saturday from 3 to 6 right here on WSB. We are uh, in the midst of a, 
an, an expose of sorts. There's just so, so much to cover on uh, this this continuing question. People ask us. I think they're going to stop asking us because I think we're answering it in spades. Who are they? I'm always like, yeah, they are above politics. They are above parties. They are above nations. And they are are imposing upon us globalism, uh, 5G is a method of it. They, they, who are they? I don't know if they're the, I mean, they're definitely include uh, the titans of finance, energy, uh, defense, but there are probably people behind the scenes. There are these, a lot of these, quote, billionaires, I feel like are created. They're created people. They're created as billionaires. They're, they're so in the forefront they're such thought leaders they have these think tanks they are photogenic telegenic they're um you know there's something very orchestrated in my mind about how big tech 5g globalism is descending upon us and as we as we are kind of submerged or caught up into this net and we have, we're all plugged in now all of a sudden to the matrix through our phones and we absolutely need them in order to make a living. So we're, we're connected to this, whether we want to or not. Our individuality, our liberty is attacked in this way. And then uh, to boot, they're taking the, fun, the, the consequence of that. They're saying that social media is an evil, that our, um, this, this, uh, this new way of communicating, of thinking, this new world is something that the old principles of law and humanity just aren't there to address. And I just, I just don't think it's like that. I think that they have accelerated us into a world that if it had emerged organically, our, we would be able to uh, adapt our laws, which are fundamental, objective, and, uh, you know, true to the marginal cases, okay, how do property law and um, individual liberty and all that? How do how do these how do these new questions? Uh, how can you resolve these new questions within the framework of tried and true law? And then you have the common law. You have courts. You have precedent. You have resolution of these issues. But when the adoption of these new technologies is juiced to the point where you can't keep up or it feels like you can't keep up, then they are now they are using that as an excuse to to not allow law to emerge from situations like our traditional common law kind of English system does, but to put a whole network of control economic control, legal control over us. And they're blaming us for it. They're saying we can't handle self-governance in the new, in this new world. And who are they? They are these think tankers, these guys who get together and tell each other what's up and how to do it. From the Council of Foreign Relations to the Brookings Institute to Chatham House, which is the sister of the Council of Foreign Relations in England, uh, to the World Economic Forum, who are the Davos people, you can see it everywhere. And uh, Binkley, thank you so much. My sidekick and producer, ha- it just does a wealth of research on this stuff. Just really, I know it's incredibly tedious, and you came up with so, so much. Does, I do enjoy uh, it. You enjoy it, do you? It doesn't- I enjoy revealing the shape-shifting lizards. 
Yes. See, that's the thing. Who are they? Are they the shape-shifting lizards? Like, what are they? I don't know. I don't care. I actually don't. It doesn't matter to me who they are. As I just, if we just stay absolutely committed to our rights, liberties, and protections, they can't encroach on us. But I, but they are intentionally manipulating our minds so that we give up our grasp on that, and that's what worries me. And I want you to play a couple of clips. From this, it's this guy, Nathan Gardell, a senior advisor to the Bergruen Institute, but he's writing a book on basically how to reshape democracy. And uh, I think I think a couple of these clips will really demonstrate the point. I want to hear, if you don't mind, clip 16. We um, propose several responses to these challenges. Uh, the three Ps. We're going to focus on the first one, but let me just go through the, the three Ps. Participation without populism. Predistribution of wealth instead of redistribution only, uh, and positive nationalism. Participation without populism. And here's the basic principle we're going to get, in, get into the discussion. We can talk about California, where we're from, which is very engaged in direct democracy for, for good and for ill. But basically, the, the, the notion is that since social networks have drawn more players into the political fray than ever before, never has the need been greater for the counterbalance of impartial practices and institutions to sort out the cacophony of voices, the welter of conflicting interests, and the deluge of contested information. To mend the breach of distrust between the institutions of self-government and the public, we call for a new form of citizen engagement uh, participation without populism, which essentially means integrating social networks and more direct democracy into the system through new, medi new mediating institutions that complement representative government. We can talk a lot more about California and our experience in direct democracy, but just to give an example here in, in, in Britain, if such a public forum for deliberation had been in place before the Brexit referendum, and all the consequences we now know had been aired, the outcome likely had been quite different. So they're using Brexit, and in other places I think they used Trump or hint at the idea that the people are too stupid to understand these important decisions and you need to shape their ideas through institutions. And this is such an echo of a book written in the 70s, The Crisis of Democracy, put together by the Trilateral Commission by Zbigniew Brzezinski, where they talk about how you need to use these non-democratic institutions in order to keep people in line and reduce the impact of democracy because the democracy was being uh, counterproductive. It, it interfered with the Vietnam War or whatever it was that was the crisis of democracy they were talking about. They advocate using institutions to control democracy. And I think that's what this guy is saying. Do you, does yeah, that it sounds right? to me like he's saying we need to create another propaganda agency to prevent things that we don't want and to shape the public mind. And I think he also wants to go through, uh, I think something you've brought up in the past is they overtly, propagandists will say, you need different avenues for the propaganda, for the tactics, for the control. It can't just be like one monolith. You have to... Yeah. You're not going to know what it is if every organization you're involved in has the same goals. And you can right. see that with these independent schools, they call them. 
that they they are all speaking from the same pages, the yeah. same talking points. And you know that there's somebody's handing memos out, and, and these are the people handing the memos out, in my opinion, through yeah. a variety of think tanks, but they're all on the same page. Or people, some people just absorb it because they hear it from so many channels of communication that they get their information from, and they're hearing the same theme echoed over and over again that they just start repeating it. Yes, and they have no idea where it came from. And and another thing that these guys do is they act like what they're what they're generating. And so in previous things, say you, if you went back and listened to these things from five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you would probably hear them ginning up populism. You'd probably hear them saying, yeah. "We need to promote the people," blah blah blah, or setting in work a dialectic, like you know, to make a pendulum swing towards populism. They they'll do stuff on purpose, but they always act like these are organic developments that they are doing their best to keep under control. And I think your clip 19, which is a different guy, Hans Kudnani, who is the senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund, uh, he, uh, and he used to be a journalist for The Guardian, uh, he, he's saying, well, just listen to the thing, and it, it seems to me that he's putting the cart before the horse. They they bring this stuff to us, and he's saying, oh, we need to address it, But and then I'll explain it. Play the clip. Over the last few decades, it seems to me that part of what's happened is an increased polarization, but at the same time, there's also been this kind of increased consensus around some issues, particularly around economic issues. Um, so um, I would actually argue that... Um, um, you know, as centre-right and centre-left parties have um, converged around basically neoliberalism, for want of a better term, that's part of what's produced extremism. It's forced, um, it's forced political opposition to the extremes. And more specifically, if you have this consensus on economic issues, then to some extent you end up fighting, I think, about cultural questions because there's no debate around economic questions. So in a sense, neoliberalism, it seems to me, produces identity politics. Yeah, he wishes. The actual reality is they have to do everything they can to foster conflict because that's how they get their power. Without conflict, government is there to help us with situations of conflict and insecurity. And when you solve the economic problems, people are fine. They're not look he's saying they're always looking for a fight. If they're not going to fight about economics, they're going to fight about culture and then they're going to get identity politics. I totally disagree. I think they imparted to us cultural marxism because marxism did not didn't uh mobilize the people. But I want to I hope we have the chance to play one more clip before the break. Let's, um, I, I want to play clip 20, which is back to that Nathan Gardell's person. And, uh, and it, and it's back to the, the issue of democracy. Let's play clip 20. The reading of, of the situation across the Western democracies, whether it's Brazil or whether it's Europe or whether it's the United States is a rupture between the institutions of public interest or the institution of self-government and the public. Uh, that is a crisis of democracy. Uh, voting, how can I put this? Voting is not what matters most. The, more, the fact that more people are voting is not the issue. The issue is that the, 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 as important as elections are to democracy, what's outside the ballot, ballot box is equally, if not more important, which is impartial institutions that allow you in diverse societies to sort out differences, to make fair trade-offs, and to come to a consensus. That's what's broken. 
That's what's broken in Britain, that's what's broken in the US, that's what's broken in Brazil, that's what's broken in Italy, that's what's broken in Germany, that's what's broken in France. So the point is, what, if, if what's broken is, the, is, is what's outside the ballot box, the impartial institutions and practices that mediate all these interests in society, uh, that's what has to be fixed. He wants impartial institutions to help us reach a consensus. Now, if you think about that, that I think he knows what the consensus is he wants from these, what they define as impartial yeah. is it's always themselves because they are the center of all truth. We're going to wrap this up after the break uh, with the coup de grace. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Don't hate the player, hate the game, son. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. Here is the coup de grace of the uh, crisis of democracy as interpreted by the Chatham House, the mothership of the mothership, Council on Foreign Relations. Let's hear it. Clip 26. In fact, what happens is the vast uh, uh, electorate uh, uh, couldn't operate without uh, factions or parties organizing it. And those who have the interest and the time, the money and the connections are the ones who dominate elections. So elections are, are, are not representative necessarily of the interest of all, certainly not the interest of all society. Uh, in fact, there's a book by a, a, a guy named Sitaraman who's an advisor to Pete Buttigieg, who's one of the presidential candidates, called the Middle Class Constitution, who argues that elections actually create aristocracies because they leave the average citizen out uh, and uh, let, not let things, but things that are controlled by those who have the money and time. This is certainly our experience in California, certainly experience with direct democracy. The oil companies come in and say, we want to kill your climate change legislation, and we're going to call ourselves the Jobs Initiative, and they put $70 million into a, a campaign to undo uh, you know, the um, election. So, I just go back to my initial point. Elections are not the only thing about democracy. It's the impartial institutions and platforms that allow for this collaborative competition between competing parties and competing interests. If those impartial institutions are destroyed or if consensus is decimated by polarization and partisanship, that's what's the crisis of democracy. But the crisis of democracy is really that the, the government is too big. It lends itself to dictatorship. There is so much more to get to delve into for what these people have in store for us and how they're going about it. Uh, we are going to get way deeper into it in our next podcast. So if you want to listen to that, go to thepropreport.com. And you can always hear this show also on thepropreport.com commercial free, which is a treat. This is Monica Perez.